Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's great to have you with us. It seems like everyone has a different definition of hero, and rightly so, because it's a term that takes on a wide cast of meanings. To some, it might be simply a dad, or a mom, or a friend who stood through thick and thin with you and helped you to become a stronger person. To others, it might be a teacher or mentor, a leader, or a stranger you never met except in a time of crisis, such as a first responder, a doctor, a policeman, a fireman, or a nurse. Many heroes arise out of wartime and strife. All of the above, in one man's opinion, deserve as much pay as athletes for the jobs they do day in and day out. My definition of what constitutes a hero or heroes for the purpose of this story is threefold. The first being a person who inserts themselves into a bad or potentially harmful situation and takes great risks in order to remove a present threat to others. The second being a person who shows great courage or leadership which provides inspiration to others either in a time of crisis or when facing similar situations. And third, the heroes whose names have become the stuff of legend. In this new 1001 Heroes Live Forever series, we're sharing the stories of heroes of all types. Some of these men and women are thought of as legends. Some are barely known outside their spheres of influence. Some are unknown, everyday people whose actions inspired others to write about them. When you begin researching stories of heroes, your faith in humanity will be lifted. There are thousands, probably millions of them. Most have or had one thing in common. They don't want to be thought of as heroes. These are their stories, which we hope will amaze and inspire you. And this will be a regular series. We'll always welcome your input and your hero stories at our email at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. It was none other than Babe Ruth who once uttered the immodest phrase, Heroes are remembered, but legends live forever. We believe that heroes live forever too, as long as we take moments like this to remember them. First up is the story of a legendary hero whose name, by 1895, was known around the world, and his life was already the stuff of legend. I'm going to take you to Portsmouth, Virginia, on the banks of the Elizabeth River, on a quiet walkway looking across at the Norfolk City skyline. Passerbys walk by this historic sign with barely a notice. It reads, and I'm paraphrasing, that this marks the site of the last Wild West show, hosted by William F. Cody, also known as Buffalo Bill. Portsmouth, Virginia, you ask? Yes, about as far removed from the Wild West as any town could be. But that was the whole point of Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows, to bring the Wild West experience to thousands of people who had never seen an Indian or mounted sharpshooters or an Indian attack on a stagecoach. This was live theater in a manner which could never be repeated today outside of the making of a Western movie. Bill Cody's traveling show had been a huge moneymaker for years, but by 1916, the year of his last show, Bill's health was failing, and the Wild West was no longer wild. 
"'It was time to rein it all in.' By 1895, Buffalo Bill Cody was a worldwide living legend, and his name, more than any other, was synonymous with the American West. It wasn't an exaggeration to say that by 1895, the most known and revered personality that came out of the American West was Buffalo Bill Cody. As well known as were the names of Hickok, Wyatt Earp, and others, they were hero figures and legends. Bill Cody was a mega-hero a global celebrity, and not for killing Buffalo, although that's how he earned his nickname as a young man. He was a symbol of the West, its danger, its romance, its seemingly endless big skies, and its ability to create larger-than-life legends. And when, at the end of an incredible career, a career that saw action as a Pony Express writer, an Indian fighter, a scout for the U.S. Cavalry, and a showman with the most successful show on Earth, in 1857, at age 11, Cody came to be celebrated as the youngest Indian fighter on the Great Plains after he killed an Indian who had helped attack the cattle drive on which Cody was working. On that same cattle drive, Cody met the young Wild Bill Hickok, who intervened on his side in a fight Cody was having with an older man. In those days, manhood came early. Cody was 14 years old when he began writing for the Pony Express in the spring of 1860, but because he'd already delivered messages between wagon trains for Russell, Majors, and Waddle, he was initially assigned a short 45-mile run. While some of Cody's exploits as a writer were the creations of publicity agents, there's no doubt about the courage and dedication he showed while in the service of the Pony Express. Of particular note, was a dramatic round-trip ride of some 300 miles in Wyoming between Red Butte Station and Pacific Spring Station, on which Cody completed not only his own leg, but those of missing relief riders, a sleepless odyssey of nearly 22 continuous hours of riding. On another legendary ride, Cody outran Sioux Warriors to Three Crossing Station, Wyoming, only to find the station keeper dead and the horses stolen. He narrowly escaped to the next station, but after arriving there, he gathered and led a group of men against the Indians, surprising them at their camp and retaking the stolen horses. During the American Civil War, 1861-65, Cody first served as a Union scout in campaigns against the Kiowa and Comanche, and later in 1863, enlisted with the 7th Kansas Cavalry, which saw action in Missouri and Tennessee. After the war, he worked for the U.S. Army as a civilian scout and dispatch bearer out of Fort Ellsworth in Kansas. In 1867, he hunted buffalo to feed construction crews on the Union Pacific Railroad. Yes, the Plains Indians were dramatically impacted by the loss of their buffalo herds. The warring tribes, used to centuries of killing and war with each other, had banded together to fight European expansion, using their already sharpened talents for war, torture, and brutality to attack settlers, miners, travelers, and the cavalry that had been sent to protect them. These methods of war shocked the whites, who reacted in kind, many times cheating and killing peaceful Indians as well as warring tribes, other times attacking and gunning down innocents, and then calling it a battle afterwards. On the other hand, I will never forget one account I read that described a frontiersman coming upon the still smoldering bodies of settlers 
whose bodies had been hung upside down over a fire to roast, while still alive, by marauding Indians. It's no wonder that many whites considered all Indians savages and treated them as such. Those who fought the Indians came to respect the Indian as one of the greatest guerrilla fighters of all time. Those men also kept the last bullet for themselves, knowing the Indians' proclivity for torturing captives. Cody acquired a reputation not only for accurate marksmanship, but also for total recall of the vast terrain he'd traversed. Knowledge of Indian ways, courage, and endurance. He was in demand as a scout and a guide, mostly for the U.S. 5th Cavalry, throughout much of the government's attempt to wipe out Indian resistance to settlement of the land west of the Mississippi River. In 1872, General Philip Sheridan arranged for Cody and Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer to guide Grand Duke Alexis of Russia on a hunting trip that had been set up by the U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant. That same year, Cody, who frequently took dangerous assignments that others refused, was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions on April 26th as a scout for a contingent of the 3rd Cavalry that was pursuing Indians who had stolen Army horses near Fort McPherson in Nebraska. During his Army service, Cody's reputation continued to grow. In all, he's believed to have engaged in 16 separate Indian fights, including his much-publicized scalping on July 17, 1876, of the Cheyenne warrior Yellowhair in Sioux County, Nebraska, which was recognized as Cody's response to the massacre of Custer's command at the Battle of the Little Bighorn just weeks before. Such exploits provided choice material not only for newspaper reporters, but also for dime novelists who transformed the hard-riding, fast-shooting Cody into a Western folk hero. Among these early authors were Ned Buntline and Prentice Ingram. Recognizing the financial possibilities inherent in dramatizing the West, Cody was easily persuaded in 1872 to star in Ned Buntline's drama, The Scouts of the Prairie. Though his acting was far from polished, he became a superb showman, and his audiences greeted him with overwhelming enthusiasm during his 45-year career as an entertainer. For many years, Cody performed during the winter and continued scouting for the Army in the summer or escorting hunting parties to the West. In the process, the line began to blur even further between the scout William F. Cody and the legendary entertainer Buffalo Bill. Indeed, as early as his scalping of yellow hair in 1876, Cody had consciously worn his flamboyant theatrical clothes into battle, later donning the same outfit to recreate his attack on stage. In 1883, Cody, with the help of producer and partner Nate Salisbury, organized his own Wild West show, a spectacular outdoor entertainment with a cast of hundreds, featuring fancy-shooting, hard-riding cowboys and yelling Indians, along with recreations of a buffalo hunt, the capture of the Deadwood South Dakota stagecoach, and a Pony Express ride. Its stars included Annie Oakley, the famous rifle shot, and in 1885, Chief Sitting Bull, who had surrendered. The show played at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee in 1887 and was staged throughout Europe. In 1893, three million people attended the show, by this point known as Buffalo Bill's Wild West and Congress of Rough Riders of the World, which included Cossacks and Vaqueros, 
during its tenure on the Midway adjacent to the official grounds of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. By the end of the 19th century, Buffalo Bill was one of the most recognized persons in the world. And without a doubt, a true American hero. Next is the story of Virginia Hall. Some researchers have tagged her as America's greatest female spy, yet her name remains unknown to many. Some knew her as Marie Monin, or Germaine, or Diane, or Camille, and even Nicholas. But the OSS, later to become the CIA, knew her as Virginia Hall. She was born in Baltimore, April 6, 1906, and she studied languages at Radcliffe, then Barnard College, later to become Columbia, during the 1920s, but wanted to finish her studies in Europe. She studied in France, Germany, and Austria, finally landing an appointment as a consular service clerk at the American Embassy in Warsaw in 1931. She wanted to join the Foreign Service, but suffered a terrible setback when she accidentally shot herself in her lower left leg in a hunting accident in Turkey. The leg was later amputated from the knee down and replaced with a wooden appendage which she named Cuthbert. The injury foreclosed whatever chance she might have had for a diplomatic career, and she resigned from the Department of State in 1939. Thereafter, she attended graduate school at American University in Washington, D.C. But she wasn't about to quit, and with World War II ramping up in Europe, she headed for England where she joined the British Special Operations Executive, the SOE. The Brits knew a tough lady when they saw one and taught her about weapons, communications, resistance activities, and security measures. She would soon earn a reputation as the Gestapo's most wanted spy. Virginia's first assignment was to establish a spy network in Vichy, France. She helped prisoners of war escape and kept contact with the French underground. She mapped drop zones for supplies and commandos from England, found safe houses, and linked up with the Jedburgh team after the Allies landed at Normandy. Virginia Hall helped train three battalions of resistance forces to wage guerrilla warfare against the Germans, and kept up a stream of valuable reporting until Allied troops overtook her small band in September. When the Germans suddenly seized the rest of France in November of 1942, she barely escaped to Spain. She'd spent 15 months there in German-controlled France, helping to coordinate the activities of the French underground in Vichy and the occupied zone of France. At the time, she was using a cover as a correspondent for the New York Post. According to Dr. Dennis Casey of the U.S. Air Force Intelligence Agency, the French nicknamed her La Dame qui Boit, and the Germans put the limping lady on their most wanted list. Before making her escape, she signaled to SOE that she hoped Cuthbert would not give trouble on the way. The SOE, not understanding the reference, replied, If Cuthbert troubles him, eliminate him. Journeying back to London after working for SOE for a time in Madrid, in July of 43, she was quietly made an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire. At the war's end, General Donovan, the head of the OSS, presented Virginia with the Distinguished Service Cross. She was the only female civilian in the war to ever receive this honor. In 1950, she married former OSS agent Paul Gualat. 
1951, she joined the CIA, working as an intelligence analyst on French parliamentary affairs, and she worked alongside her husband as part of the Special Activities Division. She retired in 1966 to a farm in Barnesville, Maryland. Virginia Hall Gwalat died at the Shady Grove Adventist Hospital in Rockville, Maryland, on July 8, 1982, at the age of 76. She's buried in the Druid Ridge Cemetery, Pikesville, Baltimore County, Maryland. Her story has been told in several books, including The Wolves at the Door, the true story of America's greatest female spy by Judith L. Pearson, and The Spy with the Wooden Leg, the story of Virginia Hall by Nancy Paulette, 2012. Our next story is dedicated to all the men and women who fight fires for a living. Have you ever heard of the Granite Mountain Hotshots? On June 28, 2013, a random lightning strike ignited a brush fire in the dry, 10-foot-high chaparral in the Weaver Mountains near Yarnell, Arizona, about 80 miles northwest of Phoenix. Extreme drought conditions were present, and this area hadn't experienced a wildfire in 47 years. Erratic winds reaching more than 22 miles per hour quickly stoked the fire, along with temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and a topography which caused the fire to spread quickly in an unpredictable fashion and direction. Within two days, the fire had spread rapidly from 300 acres to over 2,000 acres. The northwest direction of the wind was pushing the fire uphill toward communities, and lives and homes were now at risk. The Arizona Fire Authority, when faced with situations that cannot be handled by regular firefighting teams, calls in a group of elite firefighters called the Hot Shots, men who literally fight fire with fire, setting counterblazes which blacken strategic areas in order to slow or stop the progress of the advancing fire. It's dangerous work, and a freak change of wind direction or wind speed can mean life or death. In the case of this fire, which has been called the Yarnell Hill Fire, a group called the Granite Mountain Hotshots were called in to combat the fire. They were a tight team, each member having worked his way up through the ranks, earning his right to be there. They were a diverse bunch, coming from every corner of society, some trying to escape rough past, all hoping to make something of themselves by doing something for others. The reason their story became known is twofold. Because that fire claimed all but one of their 20-man crew when the winds suddenly shifted, allowing the 2,000-degree inferno to overtake them. And two, because the one survivor, 21-year-old Brendan McDonough, believed that each of them deserved to be remembered, and he wrote an account titled My Lost Brothers, which was retitled Granite Mountain. That became the basis for an intense movie called Only the Brave. McDonough suffered from depression and PTSD after the tragedy. McDonough's account was brutally honest, describing himself as a former heroin junkie with a burglary conviction for stealing a GPS. He had a child on the way with his girlfriend and with his firefighting job was looking to turn his life around. All of that is depicted in the movie. The hotshot crew was the best thing that ever happened to me says the real Brandon McDonough. It saved my life. I probably would have continued doing drugs. I probably would have ended up in prison or with an overdose or dead. I felt like a failure because I couldn't support my daughter, 
because no one wanted to hire a felon. I couldn't even get a job at McDonald's flipping burgers. It was a dark, dark period of my life. McDonough credited the hotshot crew with teaching him how to be a man and a father, and he shares his story of redemption in his memoir, My Lost Brothers, now retitled, as I just said a minute ago, Granite Mountain. The book gives a first-hand, minute-by-minute account of the Yarnell Hill fire tragedy as it unfolded. McDonough says that he wasn't the leader Eric Marsh's first choice when he was hired. Three guys washed out, said McDonough, who was in his third season with the crew when the tragedy happened. Miles Teller played Brendan in the movie. The movie underscores the dangers involved in fighting fires and the risk taken by those who do. The families of the men who gave their lives made it clear that a Hollywood movie, while bringing attention to the dangers of the job, can never accurately tell the story of the grief and devastation their families suffer long-term from this kind of a loss. Nineteen members of the Granite Mountain Hotshots lost their lives on Sunday, June 30th, 2013, while battling that fire. We've decided not to list the names here so as not to reopen painful memories. It's only important to know that they left this world as heroes who gave their lives in service to other people. It was the deadliest U.S. wildfire since the 1933 Griffith Park fire that killed 29 and the greatest loss of firefighters since the September 11th attacks. The fire grew to over 8,300 acres by July 1, 2013, and was still totally uncontrolled. The first reports of containment came the next day, when it was reported to be 8% contained and had not grown in 24 hours. By midnight on July 3rd, two days later, it was reported to be 45% contained and wasn't spreading. It took until July 10th before it was declared 100% contained. The title, Only the Brave, comes from the first words of a quotation by Dionysus of Halicomassus, a Greek historian. And the quote reads this way, Only the brave enjoy noble and glorious deaths, reads the quote, which foreshadows the fates of the firefighters in the movie. Our next story. I used to have spare time in the days before podcasting. I learned a few chords on a guitar, and my favorite type of music to play was country and folk songs. There was an old country song I used to like called Shutters and Boards. I'd heard it done by Dean Martin and Charlie Pride. It's a great song, and I wanted to learn the chords so I could play and sing along with it. It goes like this. Shutters and boards still cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow, since she said she'd never forgive. When I looked it up, I was surprised to see it had been written by Audie Murphy. There's only one Audie Murphy as far as I knew, and he was a World War II vet, a highly decorated soldier, who starred playing himself in a movie called To Hell and Back, which was based on his own diary of his experiences in World War II. I never knew he'd written country music, and I never knew that Audie Murphy at five foot five inches, had been a silent inspiration to millions of height-challenged young men who learned from his story that courage and toughness have nothing to do with size. As it turns out, Audie was born in Texas on June 20, 1925, into a large family of hard-scrabble sharecroppers in Hunt County, Texas. 
His father abandoned his seven kids and Audie's mother, who died in 1936 when Audie was still a teenager. He had left school in fifth grade to pick cotton and developed skill with a rifle to hunt food for the family and his brothers and sisters so they could eat. After the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, Murphy's older sister helped him to falsify documentation about his birth date in order to meet the minimum age requirement for enlisting in the military. Turned down by the Navy and the Marine Corps due to his short size and his weight, 110 pounds, and a very youthful face. He was only 16 when he first tried to sign up, although he kept that youthful face for years. He was finally accepted in the Army. With those features working against him, we're left to guess how rough he had it in boot camp. But whatever needling and abuse he took only served to make him tougher and more determined to succeed. Murphy was shipped to Casablanca in French Morocco on February 20, 1943, and assigned to Company B, 1st Battalion, 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division, which trained under the command of Major General Lucien Truscott. He participated as a platoon messenger with his division at Arzu in Algeria in rigorous training for the Allied assault landings in Sicily. Due to his small stature and quickness, they figured he'd make a harder target and have a higher success rate at running messages than his larger counterparts. He was promoted to private first class on May 7th and corporal on the 15th of July, 1943. When the 3rd Infantry landed at Lakata, Sicily, on July 10th, Murphy was still a division runner. On a scouting patrol, he killed two fleeing Italian officers near Canicati. Sidelined with illness for a week when Company B arrived in Palermo in July, he rejoined them when they were assigned to a hillside location protecting a machine gun emplacement, while the rest of the 3rd Infantry Division fought at San Fratello en route to the Allied capture of the transit port of Messina. Audi participated in the September 1943 mainland Salerno landing at Batapaglia. While on a scouting party along the Volturno River, he and two other soldiers were ambushed, with German machine gun fire killing one soldier. Murphy and the other survivor responded by attacking the Germans and killing five German soldiers with hand grenades and machine gun fire after charging and capturing the German machine gun. While taking part in the October Allied assault in the Volturno line, Near Mignano Monte Lungo Hill, 193, he and his company repelled an attack by seven German soldiers, killing three and taking four prisoner. He was then promoted to sergeant, December 13, 1943. In January, he was hospitalized in Naples with malaria and was unable to participate in the initial landing at the Anzio beachhead, but he returned on January 29th, fighting off the aftereffects of malaria and participated in the First Battle of Cisterna where he was made platoon sergeant in Company B following the battle. He returned with the 3rd Division to Anzio, where they remained for months. Taking shelter from the weather in an abandoned farmhouse in March, Murphy and his platoon killed the crew of a passing German tank. He then crawled out alone close enough to destroy the tank with rifle grenades, for which he received the Bronze Star with V device. He continued to make scouting patrols to take German prisoners before being hospitalized for a week in March with a second bout of malaria. American forces liberated Rome in June, and Murphy remained bivouacked in Rome with his platoon throughout July. But one month later, on the 15th of August, 1944, during the first wave of the Allied invasion of southern France, Murphy earned the Distinguished Service Cross 
for action taking that day. After landing on Yellow Beach near Ramatul, Murphy's platoon was making its way through a vineyard when the men were attacked by German soldiers. He retrieved a machine gun that had been detached from the squad and returned fire at the German soldiers, killing two and wounding one. Two Germans exited a house about a hundred yards away and appeared to surrender when Murphy's best friend responded. But it was a trick. They quickly produced weapons and shot and killed Audie's best friend. Murphy was enraged. With no regard for his personal safety, Murphy advanced alone on the house under direct fire. He killed six machine-gun armed men who were all trying to kill him, wounded two more, and took eleven prisoner. His first Purple Heart was for a heel wound received in a mortar shell blast in September of 44 in northeastern France. His first Silver Star came after he killed four and wounded three at a German machine-gun position in October at the Lomé Quarry in the Cluri River Valley. Three days later, Murphy crawled alone towards the Germans at Lomé, carrying an SCR 536 radio and directing his men for an hour while the Germans fired directly at him. When his men finally took the hill, 15 Germans had been killed and 35 wounded. His actions earned him a bronze oak leaf cluster for a silver star. He was awarded a battlefield commission to second lieutenant on October 14th, which elevated him to platoon leader. While en route to Brevilleurs, on October 26th, the 3rd platoon of Company B was attacked by a German sniper group. Murphy captured two before being shot in the hip by a sniper. He returned fire and shot the sniper between the eyes. At the 3rd General Hospital in Ada Provence, the removal of gangrene from the wound caused partial loss of his hip muscle and kept him out of combat for three months. The Colmar Pocket, 850 square miles in the Vosges Mountains, had been held by German troops since November of 44. Now, in January of 45, Murphy, having refused to be mustered out with his hip wound, wasn't finished fighting and rejoined his platoon, which had been moved to the Colmar area in December. He moved with the 3rd Division on January 24th to the town of Holtzweer, where they faced a strong German counterattack. He was wounded again, this time in both legs. The Germans had scored a direct hit on an M-10 tank destroyer, setting it alight, forcing the crew to abandon it. Murphy, now commander of Company B, ordered his men to retreat to safer positions in the woods, remaining alone at his post, shooting his M-1 carbine and directing artillery fire via his field radio, while the Germans aimed fire directly at his position. He then mounted the abandoned, burning tank destroyer and began firing its 50 caliber machine gun at the advancing Germans, killing a squad crawling through a ditch towards him. For an hour, Murphy stood on the flaming tank destroyer, returning German fire from foot soldiers and advancing tanks, killing or wounding 50 Germans. He sustained yet another leg wound during this stand and stopped only after he ran out of ammunition. He then dismounted from the anti-tank destroyer and rejoined his men, disregarding his own injury, and led them back into the fight to repel the Germans. He insisted on remaining with his men while his wounds were treated. For his actions that day, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. In February, 45, Murphy was promoted to first lieutenant and was awarded the Legion of Merit for his service from January 44 to February 45. He was moved from the front lines to regimental headquarters and made a liaison officer. 
After that, he was relegated to officer in the Army Reserve, a post he held till his death. He had received every combat medal the Army had to give for valor. He returned to the States a hero and embarked on a 21-year acting career. He played himself in the 1955 autobiographical film To Hell and Back, based on his 1949 memoirs of the same name. But most of his roles were in westerns. Although Murphy was initially reluctant to appear as himself in To Hell and Back, the 1955 adaptation of his book directed by Jesse Hibbs, he eventually agreed, and it became the biggest hit in the history of Universal Studios at that time. To help publicize the release of the film, he made guest appearances on TV shows such as What's My Line, Toast of the Town, and Colgate Comedy Hour. The Hibbs-Murphy team proved so successful into Helen Beck that the two worked together on five subsequent films. And that resulted in the 1956 western Walk the Proud Land and the non-westerns Joe Butterfly and The World in My Corner. He was also, as first mentioned, a fairly accomplished songwriter. He also bred quarter horses in California and Arizona and became a regular participant in horse racing. Suffering from what would today be described as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, Murphy slept with a loaded handgun under his pillow for the remainder of his life. He looked for solace in addictive sleeping pills. In his last few years, he was plagued by money problems but refused offers to appear in alcohol and cigarette commercials because he didn't want to set a bad example. In an effort to draw attention to the problems of returning Korean War and Vietnam War veterans, Murphy spoke out candidly about his own problems with PTSD. It was known during Murphy's lifetime as battle fatigue and shell shock, terminology that dated back to World War I. He called on the government to give increased consideration and study to the emotional impact of combat experiences and to extend health care benefits to war veterans. As a result of legislation introduced by U.S. Congressman Olin Teague five months after his death in 1971, the Audie L. Murphy Memorial VA Hospital in San Antonio, now part of the South Texas Veterans Health Care System, was dedicated in 1973. It was May 28, 1971, when Murphy was killed when the private plane in which he was a passenger crashed into Brush Mountain near Catawba, Virginia, 20 miles west of Roanoke in conditions of rain, clouds, fog, and zero visibility. The pilot and four other passengers were also killed. The aircraft was a twin-engine Aero Commander 680 flown by a pilot who had a private pilot license and reported 8,000 hours of flying time, but who held no instrument rating. The aircraft was recovered May 31st, three days later. After her husband's death, Pamela Murphy moved into a small apartment and got a clerk position at the Sepulveda Veterans Administration Hospital in Los Angeles, where she remained employed for 35 years. In 1975, a court awarded Murphy's widow Pamela and their two children $2.5 million in damages because of that accident. A monument still stands on the Appalachian Trail in the Blue Ridge Mountains near the site of the plane crash in Loudoun County, Virginia. Audie Murphy was buried June 7, 1971 with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. In attendance were Ambassador to the UN George H.W. Bush, Army Chief of Staff William Westmoreland, and many of the 3rd Infantry Division. Murphy's gravesite is Section 46, Headstone Number 466-366-11, 
located across Memorial Drive from the amphitheater. A special flagstone walkway was later constructed to accommodate the large number of people who visit to pay their respects. It's the cemetery's second most visited gravesite after that of President John F. Kennedy. The headstones of Medal of Honor recipients buried at Arlington National Cemetery were normally decorated in gold leaf. Murphy previously requested that his stone remain plain and inconspicuous, like that of an ordinary soldier. In 2013, he was honored by his home state, Texas, with the Texas Legislative Medal of Honor. Swedish power metal band Sabaton wrote a song on their 2014 studio album, Heroes, also entitled To Hell and Back, commemorating and recognizing Audie Murphy as one of the most decorated American veterans of World War II and a great hero who inspired millions to be all they could be. In our next story, the North Vietnamese Army regulars called him Du Kish Long Trang, meaning White Feather and placed a $30,000 bounty on him, dead or alive, preferably dead. It was rare for them to place bounties on anyone, and when they did, it ranged from $2 to $2,000. But Marine sniper Carlos Norman Hathcock had cost them 300 or more good men. When they found out who he was and where he was operating, they sent their best snipers out to find him and take him out. And he took them out. He wore a white feather in the band of his helmet. His fellow U.S. Marines knew of the NVA's mission to kill Hathcock, and they donned white feathers as well. Go after one Marine, and you got to deal with all of them. A great example of how Marines watch each other's backs. The chances are you've seen a movie or television drama depicting a U.S. sniper killing an enemy sniper with a bullet through the eye as each sniper found and lined up the other at the exact same moment. It sounds like fiction. Yet it was Hathcock whose bullet found his enemy's scope and eye sighting in on him and shot first in the jungles of Vietnam near Hill 55, the fire base from which Hathcock was operating southwest of Da Nang. Hathcock and his spotter, John Roland Burke, were stalking an NVA sniper nicknamed the Cobra, who had already killed a number of Marines. When Hathcock saw a glint of light deep in the jungle foliage, indicating light reflecting from a lens inside a sniper's rifle scope, he reacted with lightning speed and fired, his bullet entering the scope of the NVA sniper's rifle and killing him instantly. Surveying the situation, Hathcock concluded that the only feasible way he could have put the bullet straight down the enemy's scope and through his eye would have been if both snipers were zeroing in on each other at the same time, which gave him only a few seconds to act, and Hathcock fired first. Given the flight time of rounds at long ranges, the snipers could easily have simultaneously killed each other. Hathcock took possession of the dead sniper's rifle, hoping to bring it home as a trophy, but after he turned it in and tagged it, it was stolen from the armory. His missions became the stuff of legend when he killed a female NVA platoon leader known as Apache Woman, who was known for torturing Marines they had captured before killing them. By the time his tours ended, he had amassed 93 spotter-confirmed kills, with an additional 300 unconfirmed. On a volunteer mission days before the end of his first deployment, he crawled over 1,500 yards of field to shoot an NVA general. He was not informed of the details of the mission until he accepted it. This effort took four days and three nights 
without sleep, of constant inch-by-inch crawling. Hathcock said he was almost stepped on as he lay camouflaged with grass and vegetation in a meadow shortly after sunset. At one point he was nearly bitten by a bamboo viper, but had the presence of mind to avoid moving and giving up his position. As the general exited his encampment, Hathcock fired a single shot that struck the general in the chest, killing him. On September 16th, 1969, Hathcock's career as a sniper came to a sudden end along Route 1, north of LZ Baldy, when an Amtrak he was riding on, an LVT-5, struck an anti-tank mine. Hathcock, wounded, pulled seven Marines from the Flame Engulfed vehicle, suffering severe burns, some third degree, to his face, arms, and legs, before someone pulled him away and got him in water because he didn't realize he was burnt that badly. While recovering, Hathcock received the Purple Heart. Nearly 30 years later, he received a Silver Star for this action. All eight injured Marines were evacuated by helicopter to hospital ship USS Repose, then to a naval hospital in Tokyo, and ultimately to the burn center at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. After returning to active duty, Carlos Hathcock helped establish the Marine Corps Scout Sniper School at the Marine Base in Quantico, Virginia. Due to his extreme injuries suffered in Vietnam, he was in nearly constant pain, but he continued to dedicate himself to teaching snipers. He was also called upon to provide sniper instruction to police departments and select military units, such as SEAL Team 6. Hathcock once said that he survived in his work because of an ability to get in the bubble or to put himself in a state of utter, complete, absolute concentration, first with his equipment, then his environment, in which every breeze and every leaf meant something, and finally on his quarry. After the war, a friend showed Hathcock a passage written by Ernest Hemingway. Quote, Certainly there is no hunting like the hunting of man, and those who have hunted armed men long enough and like it never really care for anything else thereafter. He copied Hemingway's words on a piece of paper. He got that right, Hathcock said. It was the hunt, not the killing. Hathcock said in a book written about his career as a sniper, quote, I like shooting and I love hunting, but I never did enjoy killing anybody. It was my job. If I don't get those bastards, then they're going to kill a lot of those kids dressed up like Marines. That's the way I look at it. Hathcock generally used the standard sniper rifle, the Winchester Model 70 .30-06 caliber rifle, with the standard 8-power unertal scope. On some occasions, however, he used a different weapon, the M2 Brownie machine gun, on which he mounted a 10x unertal scope, using a bracket of his own design. Hathcock made a number of kills with this weapon in excess of 1,000 yards, including his record for the longest confirmed kill at 2,500 yards. Hathcock carried a Colt M1911A1 pistol as his sidearm. Hathcock's son, Carlos Hathcock III, later enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps. He retired from the Marine Corps as a gunnery sergeant after following in his father's footsteps as a shooter and became a member of the Board of Governors of the Marine Corps Distinguished Shooters Association. Hathcock died on February 22, 1999 in Virginia Beach, Virginia from complications resulting from multiple sclerosis. 
He's buried at Woodlawn Memorial Gardens in Norfolk, Virginia. The story of Carlos Hathcock was suggested to us by one of our loyal fans, Kyle P. Thank you, Kyle, for your feedback and kind review. Others who want to suggest heroes or their own stories of heroes, please email us. This is a repeating series, so please email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. And here's an unsung hero story, which comes from Kenya. It's a news article from ABC News, September 27, 2013. Alexander Markhart, Nairobi, Kenya. In one of the most memorable images to emerge from inside the Nairobi Mall, attacked last weekend by Islamic extremists, a four-year-old girl is seen running toward a man who is reaching out a hand to pull her to safety. The man was Abdul Haji, a 39-year-old real estate executive who rushed to the mall as the mall attack got underway. He managed to evacuate scores of people to safety, including that young American girl, Portia Walker, and is being hailed in Kenya as a hero. As the gunmen began their rampage in Nairobi's upscale Westgate Mall early Saturday afternoon, Haji got a short text from his brother, who was at the mall. I'm stuck at the Westgate. It's probably a terrorist attack. Pray for me. Haji's immediate thought was that militants had gone to assassinate his brother. Until just a few weeks ago, his brother was an undercover counterterrorism official battling organizations like Al-Shabaab, the Al-Qaeda-linked group that has claimed responsibility for the four-day siege that left almost 70 people dead. But a local media outlet had recently revealed Haji's brother's identity, and the family, including their father, a former defense minister, had started receiving death threats. Haji said he grew up around guns and lately had been carrying his pistol with him. I left where I was and headed straight to the Westgate, Haji told ABC News. Luckily on that particular day, I had actually carried my licensed gun with me, so I didn't have to go back home to waste time and pick up a gun. I went straight to the mall. When he arrived, he quickly figured out his brother was not the target. Haji joined up with a group of around 15 men outside, including some security officers, most of them armed and some wearing body armor, and headed into the mall with workers from the Red Cross. It was like a war zone, he said. I've never seen such a massacre. I've never come across such a thing. It was shocking. There were young girls, there were ladies, elderly people, some children. We were shocked. The group had taken a ramp up to the mall's top floor, which they started clearing, going store to store and yelling at people to get out, many of whom didn't know which side the men were on. Most of them were really petrified. They couldn't move. They were lying down on the ground as if they were dead. But they were not dead, said Haji. We kept shouting that we were police officers. Get up, get up, open the door. We're police officers. As they arrived on the mall's ground floor, the attackers opened fire on the group, shooting one of the men Haji was with in the stomach. It was then that Haji came face to face with one of the attackers, whom he described as of dark complexion, and he had a black bandana tied on his head. When his eyes and my eyes met, he started taunting me and telling me, Come closer, Haji recalled, telling me in Swahili, Come, come, as if it was a joke to him. This whole thing was a joke to him. Nearby, a woman was trapped behind a table. Haji, while the man was pointing a gun at him, yelled at her to run to them, 
but the woman, 39-year-old Catherine Walker, said she couldn't because she had three young children with her. Haji told her to send the eldest, four-year-old Portia, who ran across. She was a very brave girl, said Haji affectionately. She's running toward a man with a gun, and she was very brave. I don't know how she knew to do it, but she did, Catherine Walker later told the Telegraph newspaper. She did what she was told, and she went. Walker and another woman followed close behind with the other two children, who then reunited outside with the family's two teenage sons, who had been shopping elsewhere in the mall. I was worried about family in America seeing the photo because we haven't really shared the whole story with them yet, Walker told the newspaper. For me, I know the story behind it and that it ends well. I think I owe Mr. Haji a hug or two. As Haji arrived at a Nairobi hotel for the interview, he was instantly recognized by hotel staff who asked for the photos with him. But Haji dismisses all the talk of him being a hero, saying he was just going to the mall to save his brother. I think anybody in the situation would have probably done the same thing, he said. If he was armed and thinking the worst about his family, he would have probably done the same thing. Haji claims he's coping well in the aftermath of the ordeal. He says he doesn't remember any nightmares, but his wife has told him that he's been crying in his sleep. I never saw anything like that, said Haji. It'll probably stick with me for a long time, and I just hope I don't have to go through the same thing ever again. And this is a story from subreddit under the heading of Badass Dads. My dad worked hard labor from the time he was old enough to walk. He was born in 1950 into a very poor rural family, one of 12 children. As soon as he could walk, he was pulling tobacco. For several years, he actually had to draw water from a well. If he wanted flour, he walked to the flour mill, driven by a water wheel, and bought it. Industrial progress in some rural parts of the U.S., even after World War II, was slower than most people realize. He did every type of farm work you can imagine and helped run his father's country store until he was 21 when he graduated high school three years late because of an undiagnosed hearing and sight problem. Then he had his first pair of children and worked for over 20 years for Vepco. Eventually, he got a divorce a new job at Burlington Industries, married my mother, started a cattle business, and he had his second set of kids. After another 20 years of working, often overtime, at Burlington, without a significant raise, bonus, or promotion, due to a racism backlash running way back, his body and mind finally gave out, probably partially contributing to his second divorce. He's 60, I'm only 23, and he's put in a good 50 years of hard labor but only rarely did he ask for my help. He's fed cattle 80-pound bales of hay less than a week after a hernia operation because he didn't want to interrupt my homework. He seriously injured himself on multiple occasions. He badly slashed himself with a chainsaw, blacked out from dropping a tree on his head, amazingly he didn't cut himself that time, and passed out from heat exhaustion because he wanted better for me. Dad gave me a computer and let me play hoping that I'd never, ever have to do what he's done. Now, I'm looking for a job as a software engineer. I can't think of any way to thank him enough. He's not really the emotional type, but I think he'll understand when, after paying off my school loans, I completely restore his rusting-out 57 Chevy truck. He parked it before I was born 
"'because he and Mom didn't have the money "'to keep it running with family on the way. "'As I'm no mechanic, "'if Reddit has any advice on getting said antique truck restored, "'I'd love to hear it. "'It's probably a project I could throw money at "'until I was satisfied. "'But there's got to be a smarter way to go about it. "'Some reputable place that specializes in restoring antique vehicles "'without overcharging. "'Some place that will explain the options I have "'when I'm seriously considering spending... Ten to twenty thousand dollars. Thanks for joining us at One Thousand One Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries for this first installment of Heroes Live Forever. I hope you found it interesting and inspiring. Next week, the stories of Jim Bowie, Eddie the Eagle, Leanne Toey, Amelia Earhart, Frank Serpico, and others. I want to remind you that we really would appreciate your considering becoming a Patreon supporter. I don't mention it often, so it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it is very helpful in paying expenses for this show, and it's a great way to say thank you. We're at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And you can give a one-time donation or help us monthly. I think we've proven after four years that we're not going away, and I'm in this for the long haul. I hope you can tell that I really enjoy doing this and sharing these stories with all of our shows. So please take a moment, go to Patreon and help us out, and we'll leave a link in the show notes for you. Our 1001 network of shows are listened to and enjoyed worldwide with millions of unique listens every year. A special thanks to these recent reviewers. Liberty Psych writes, In a class by itself, it's not just that the stories are great. It's the way they're told, with unpretentious sincerity. Love of storytelling. So refreshing when many podcasts come across as smarmy and condescending. Thank you for doing what you do. And this one. From KPaint84. Best podcast ever. Mr. Hagedorn, your 1001 podcasts are the best podcasts I've ever listened to. I drive a truck for a living, therefore I have the ability to binge listen to your shows for hours and hours each day, for which I'm very thankful. Thank you so much for what you do. And this one. Oh my gosh, I cannot decide which of these is my favorite. I've listened to all of them more than once. Walking, driving, doing dishes, clipping the plants, sitting on the porch. They're every one good, and each in a way of its own. I try to get my grandkids to listen, and all my sons. That one from Zinging Around. And this one, excellent podcast. Always interesting and well presented. Thanks. And this one from Cliff McAllister. Informative, fun, and always interesting. The podcast makes available information I didn't even know I wanted to know about. Keep them coming. And this one, great, informative, very few commercials. Doug Damewood. Love this podcast. And this one, he does a nice job of creating a fast-moving factual narrative that's easy to follow and fun to listen to. That one from R.I. Tank Builders. And this one, from Shamrock Traveler. I find everything about this podcast very interesting, well-written, easy listening, and engaging. Thank you. And thank all of you very much for taking the time to send these reviews. We appreciate it. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back soon.